Welcome to Talking Property, where you get the inside information into what's going on in the Australian and Asian property markets from leading property and investment experts. Welcome to Australian Property Journal's Talking Property podcast. My guest today is Bruce Wan, the Head of Research at MaxCap Group. Welcome, Bruce. Hello, Nelson, and hello, everyone listening. Yes, uh, Bruce, very exciting to he- uh, hear from you and welcome you as a first-time guest on the Talking Property podcast series. Um, our listeners and readers will be very excited to hear what um, is in store for us in 2024. But particularly before we start, sort of um, let's hear about, you know, Australia's economic performance uh, over the, this past year and um, also how the global you know, market plays into all of that. Uh, do you want to give us a view? Absolutely, Nelson. You know, for sure, you know, when we sort of talk about Australia, you know, we do need to start with uh, what's happening in the world and the global economy. Mm. It has been certainly a very tough time over the last couple of years, you know, since the uh, start of the pandemic. You know, we had a couple of years of very extreme economic volatility, you know. All those pandemic shutdowns and reopenings, they put an end to that very long run of uh, consistent growth and low, in low inflation that, that investors have enjoyed for, for, for many years. And when we sort of look at the global economy right now, we're seeing across a lot of major developed markets a very consistent pattern of weaker growth, high inflation, and with uh, the notable exception of Japan, very much mm. high interest rates as well. Now, you, I know if you know me, uh, Nelson, you know, for me, I love to channel the great uh, Bernard Salt at every opportunity. <laughs> and to that end, uh, I would coin the acronym WINE or wild inflation and negligible expansion yes. to describe this very unusual pattern of low growth and high inflation, this environment that we've seen for the last little while and mm. that we're likely to see for the next couple of years. Mm. And just between you and me, Nelson, I'm sure there is a, an equivalent beer scenario, uh, the beer to go with the wine, perhaps along the lines of a, a buoyant and extended economic recovery that I can come up with. But frankly, we're not there, <laughs> both in terms of the outlook or the acronym. So uh, let me workshop that with uh, ChatGBT a little bit more and yeah. come back to you in subsequent podcasts, right? Well, it'll be interesting. I think our listeners will be writing down wine and beer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, more serious load, uh, you yeah. know, we do have a lot of uncertainty around the global outlook. Mm. We have wars in Ukraine and Gaza still raging on with very tragic consequences. Mm. You know, this is adding a lot of uh, volatility to commodity markets, the most disruptive one being crude oil prices. Mm. It's also driving a lot of fragmentation in the global economy, you know, both the world of trade and the world of capital. They're starting to divide themselves along two blocks. You know, it's not quite back to the, the bad old days of the Cold War era, but it's definitely unwinding some of the benefits of, of globalization. Yeah, above and beyond. Yeah, yeah, above and beyond all this, we do have a U.S. presidential election in 2024 as well, which we'll all watch on with great interest, and which may drive a very different set of uh, global economic policies by the end of next year. Mm. It could be more of the same, or a Republican elected. Exactly. Yeah. Correct. Mm. Now, all of these global trends, there to varying degrees, they do impact us here in Australia, and thus affecting us our, our outlook for 2024. Mm. You know, for the Australian outlook, the most useful point I can make is that uh, Australia is very far from the rest of the world, but it is not completely removed from it. Mm. You know, when we talk about this sort of a stagflationary global trend, we do expect that to be fully replicated here in Australia. So we are seeing already low growth and high inflation, uh, certainly for 2024 in the year ahead, but more likely into uh, running into 2025 as well. Mm. And at the same time, this sort of global slowdown that we're seeing, it is being a little bit diluted by the time it's hitting Australian shores. Uh, thankfully, we are slightly but not completely removed from the energy market disruptions we're seeing in Europe uh, and Russia, but and also with the sort of wars in Ukraine and Gaza and all these sort of associated impacts for that. Mm-hmm. Now, at the risk of uh, driving your listeners to more wine and, and Valium, you know, <laughs> there are some very supportive drivers of the outlook. You know, Australia is still very much a safe haven, uh, and that reputation is very much intact. You know, this is still drawing a lot of people and drawing yes. a lot of capital to our shores. You know, on the people front, you know, we are seeing that very clearly in the migration numbers, you know, there are more people arriving and less people leaving. I think that that second part of that uh, net migration equation often gets uh, ignored. But, you know, all of this uh, does add a lot to uh, our 
profile expectations for economic growth and housing demand as well. Now, I'm sure you, you'll sort of want to talk about uh, uh, the headline numbers for migration. There's been a lot of press about it. Yes. You know, the headline numbers is sort of quite, quite dramatic. You know, we are more than adding more than uh, half a million people a year. It is just driving a lot of newspaper ink to be spilt about, you know, what whether there's appropriate migration targets and whether we need that, uh, whether we do need a, a big Australia as a result. Look to my eyes. That migration uplift that we saw in 2023 is yes. mostly a catch-up. You know, we've had a period of closed borders in 2020 and 2021. Mm. And when you average this out over the last, let's call it, three years, we're actually still running below the levels we had from the sort of preceding decade. So, you know, this is not particularly a, a strong pace of migration, but there is a timing and catch-up element associated with that. Mm. And when we sort of look at these sort of migration numbers, it will slow naturally, you know, as the sort of inbound backlog sort of clears a little bit and more people feel more confident about moving overseas. They're not feeling confident today, but over time that might, confidence might come back. Um, and they will sort of move some of the numbers back a little bit in terms of net inflows. And all of that kind of happen without any sort of knee-jerk policy reaction. So, you know, looking sort of uh, likely to, to be the case over the course of uh, next year and the year beyond that. But, you know, beyond the people front, on the capital front, uh, the investment markets in Australia, they're still supremely accessible and transparent. You know, people are far less likely to be losing sleep over the Australian investment, especially when values in Australia, residential, they're rising in commercial, they're not falling by a lot. And there are fewer instances, far less instances of distress in Australia compared to what we're seeing in Europe and, and North America as well. So that's the sort of global and Australian outlook in a nutshell. It does have very profound impacts on how we go about investing and looking at property over the year ahead. Yeah, and this is the, uh, I guess that goes into the next topic I was looking at, just thinking about inflation. Um, that, that's the one that uh, has been, uh, when you talk about um, spilled ink, <laughs> newspapers <laughs> all over the place, we're talking about it. it's up, it's down. Uh, the latest figures, no doubt, you saw recently, I think it was released yesterday, was that inflation has actually uh, exceeded expectations and declined um, more than expected. And so, and now again, the uh, I think there's a joke that when you ask economists, um, how many Absolutely. economists in question. So now there's talks that rates might come down in 2024. Um, what can we expect from, you know, uh, continuing from your discussion earlier, what can we expect from inflation numbers? I mean, you, you're saying it's going to be stubborn uh, in 2024 and into 2025, but... Um, do you mind going into a bit more yeah, on that? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, this is coming from someone who's still very shocked to be paying $20 for lunch in the city. So <laughs> I hear you and empathize with the listeners uh, greatly. Yeah. Sure thing. It's uh, the consumer price inflation. They are slowing down. Mm. It's still just running below the 5% mark. But that is still above the uh, official 2 to 3% target ban and the f ceiling for that target, which is... 3%, right? Yes. Mm. It's still warranting, you know, you've heard the rhetoric from the Reserve Bank, a very hawkish stance about interest rates. And that's being re reinforced by the new uh, sort of Reserve Bank governor and continuing on the sort of stance that we had previously as well. Mm. It's interesting, though, to see how that moderating uh, inflation profile is unfolding in Australia. Now, certainly, we've seen that peak in inflation late last year, late 2022. Yes, it is slowing on a on a steady but uneven basis, right? But at the same time, that inflation in Australia is still stubbornly high. Yes. You know, let me give you a sense of that uh, uh, with a, a frame of reference, right? When we look around around different countries overseas, consumer price inflation indicators, they are slowing much more in other markets. You know, well, Australia is tracking below 5%. That equivalent number for the UK is in the fours. Right. Uh, in the US and in Japan, it's in the threes. In Europe, it's in the twos. In China, it's actually negative. We're seeing deflation in China mm. as well. So it's slowed down much more elsewhere. The other interesting point I would add is that for all the concern about things like housing construction costs, mm. even that component is slowing faster than consumer price indices, right? So, uh, you know, we are starting to see outright falls in things like steel prices, timber prices. So, you know, for all the concerns about stubbornly high consumer price inflation, we're actually seeing greater moderation in things like housing construction costs. 
Yes. Now, you know, if we can take a, a broader view, there are sort of very good reasons why in Australia we're seeing a little bit more inflation persistence than we're seeing in other markets. And mostly it's because of the longer time lags for us to sort of pass through costs that we see inherent in the Australian economy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the way we roll over our energy bills, energy contracts, insurance bills, uh, rental contracts, it just allows for a little bit more persistence in inflation than we see in sort of other markets offshore. Mm. Now, all of that uh, very stubborn, uh, that stubbornness in inflation has a very profound impact on how it affects the things like interest rates uh, in 2024. Mm. Now, to give you a bit of context, uh, the US Federal Reserve, uh, they've seen inflation slow a little bit more. Their central bank has raised interest rates by a little bit more as well. So that forecasters, they're feeling much more confident and comfortable about calling a peak in US rates uh, with rate cuts expected to come in the second half of 2024. Mm -hmm. But where we sort of run that same ruler for Australia, our central bank has not tightened as much. Uh, you know, our cash rate is, what is it, 4.35 compared to 5.5 in the US. And also our inflation has not slowed as much as US and other markets. So the Reserve Bank has a lot of valid reasons to be thinking that they need to do a little bit more work to do the job to contain inflation and to to, to an extent that they're happy to break ranks compared to other central banks and tighten when other central banks are are calling a pause. Mm. And we saw that very clearly in November in Australia. Um, we are likely to see that very uh, clearly again in early 2024, most likely in February uh, for, for Reserve Bank to be hiking again, most likely when they sort of release their statement of monetary policy around February. Yes. Uh, thereafter, you know, what happens is, is an open question. You know, it really does depend on things like inflation data readings and whether that pace of inflation moderation is running in line with sort of expectation as well. Mm. Now, interestingly, uh, when we sort of look at the forward money market curve, we actually don't see the same rate cuts priced into the Australian money market. In plain terms, uh, investors are expecting these rates, cash rates, to be holding much higher for longer and not fall away in the same way the market expects for the US and a few other markets as well. So in other words, you know, borrowers shouldn't be banking on, on rate cuts next year to bail you out of your sort of a very high mortgage repayments because that money market expectation, it is still very much entrenched in that higher for longer camp, sort of with no foreseeable relief in there in 2024. Mm. But uh, from from an investment perspective, you know, this rate profile should be front of mind when we think about how investors should be deploying capital. You know, this is usually the point I I bring in Shakespeare's uh, Polonius quote, right, which is uh, coming to mind here as a neither borrower nor lender be, right? Um, That is absolutely not the case uh, in terms of our suggestion. And a higher rates, you know, we can think of it simply as as a transfer of wealth between from borrowers towards lenders. So, you know, at a high rate environment, as we're seeing now, it is much better to be a lender than to be the borrower. And as more sort of investors and, and people expect, accept this, this sort of new interest rate reality, we should see more capital move from borrowing to lending, from equity to credit as well. So mm. it does sort of provide some homework to do for, for listeners and, and investors. MaxCap Group is one of Australia's leading commercial real estate financiers. Since inception in 2007, they have originated and managed $14.5 billion across more than 490 investments spanning all real estate sectors and across the full capital stack. And this is the thing too, right, regarding interest rates. I mean, we've had increases, but that hasn't slowed the residential uh, property market at all. Um, there were, you know, uh, periods, well, or briefly, where the housing market went, oh, okay, we're gonna, we'll stop and monitor interest rates and see where it went. But all the data now coming out of PropTrack, CourtLogic, uh, SQM, Domain, all show that house prices, I think it was November, have recovered from the uh, well, small downturn that we had uh, during the COVID period. So, you know, in looking at the residential property market now, where do you see that going in in next year, and which cities do you you know expect to outperform or or, or under or underperform? Absolutely, Nelson. Let's turn our attention to 
everyone's favorite real estate sector, right? So it's talked about at barbecues all the time. <laughs> and then just to arm everyone for the forthcoming sort of Christmas barbecues conversation as well. Yes. So happy to do that, right? Look, thankfully in our in our audio podcast, you can't see my head of a, a graying hair. So I was gonna say I've been doing this for many years. But the yeah. reality is, is I've been doing this for several decades in terms of things like forecasting the housing market. Mm. And for many years and, and for many decades, it's actually been quite easy, right? You mm. take what's going on in, in the mortgage rate. You take the sign there, you change the sign around and voila, uh, that's where house prices are going. So if you did that simple trick for last seven cycles, for last 30 years, you would have picked each uh, market turning point, each market downturn and look like a hero every time. Now, in this context, though, what we saw in 2023 was very unusual. We've actually had rising mortgage rates and rising prices. Now, why did that happen? Did mortgage rates suddenly not matter? Well, absolutely not. It still matters a lot. But mm. I think the key to the puzzle comes down to housing demand and supply. You know, on the demand side, we've spoken a lot about the strong pace of migration. And we've seen that uh, it really accelerates since borders reopened after the pandemic. Suddenly, uh, as I mentioned, the nose numbers I do expect to naturally moderate and settle to a more more manageable pace in 2024, but it's still adding a lot to housing demand. And I would say adding to very specific types of housing demand as well. You know, for example, right, when we look at the sources for migration, you know, where the people are moving from, the top places of origin are in order, uh, people coming in from India, from China, and also expats returning uh, overseas, so returning Australians. Yes. You know, over time, we do see very clear housing preferences expressed by these settlers, you know, often more towards major capital cities. And we know that very clearly Indian migrants strongly prefer detached housing, uh, especially into house and land packages. Chinese mm. migrants are slightly more inclined to be staying in medium and high density apartments. So that pattern of migration does really drive the pattern of housing demand as well. Now, meanwhile, on the supply side, we do see a, a clearly slower pace of housing construction. You know, the reason for that slowing since uh, 2020, they're all quite plain to see. You know, whether that was the pandemic shutdowns, delays from La Nina and wet weather and rising construction costs and rising funding costs as well. Yes. But when we find, wind the clock forward to 2024, a lot of these drivers have changed. You know, thankfully, there are no more lockdowns. What mm. was a La Nina wet weather pattern is now shifting to an El Nino dry weather uh, drought pattern. Yes. Cost construction, cost inflation, as I mentioned, peaked last year, starting to moderate a little bit more clearly. Mm. And it is only the funding cost piece, which remains a little bit high and a constraint to sort of greater supply. So we do expect that supply to be coming back, but demand being much stronger, there's going to be some some degree of imbalance there. Mm. So in the context, you know, the government's very ambitious, sort of 1.2 million dwelling uh, housing target for the next five years. Yes. It is going to be a massive challenge to go anywhere near that pace of uh, <laughs> a supply uh, to mm. meet that particular target. But to be honest, look, I don't mind seeing these targets so long as they help draw attention to the uh, current to the delays and inefficiencies in the planning system. Absolutely. Mm. But in the meantime, right, uh, this, there is demand, supply and balance, that's here and now, and it's likely to be here to stay. And it is having a very clear and telling impact on house prices and all of this despite higher mortgage rates as well. So, you know, given this persistent state of housing undersupply, it has been the sort of key and vital factor behind the sort of 9% increase in prices we've seen across major capital cities since the March of uh, 2023. Yes. Uh, all of this uh, went ordinarily, uh, sort of higher mortgage rates should be driving lower prices. You know, and looking ahead, you know, this demand supply imbalance, that's not set to disappear overnight. You know, no. Whether there's any sort of a near-term attempt to control the flow of people, which is very hard to do, it's not going to sort of really change that uh, demand supply dynamic. Now, I was going to add that, you know, at this stage, you know, we've seen some sort of eye-catching headlines about monthly price falls, I think, from CoreLogic and a few others towards the end of the year. It is important to remember that some of these movements are very seasonal. Yes. You know, at this time of year, there are fewer trades, there's smaller trades, um, people sort of, uh, a lot of buyers, sellers, agents, they clock off for the Christmas New Year period. It's only if we see some of these uh, monthly price falls run into February and beyond that will sort of give us a little bit more cause for concern, you know. Mm. But that being said, we're not expecting that to happen. 
the fundamentals of that housing market, they're still not change uh, with more demand and supply for the foreseeable future. And it is still underpinning an, a moderate price gain outlook in 2024. Mm. Now, Nelson, you asked about the sort of city by city outlook as well. Yes, and I would I say there is a, a lot of nuance to that outlook. So we do need to think about that demand supply balance by city and also things like the degree of housing affordability, which is a sensitive topic, but it also it is quite different uh, city by city as well. You know, happy to uh, be a little bit Sydney-centric and, and start with Sydney. Fundamentally, <laughs> there there is still a lot of demand and not enough supply. And at the same time, you know, it's worth recognising that Sydney is the most expensive and least affordable housing market in the country. In this context, you know, we are still expecting price growth to be uh, positive, uh, but where people can make their dollar stretch a little bit more to avoid some of these affordability constraints, constraints. And by that, I mean looking at it a little bit further out in terms of a lower price points, looking at units uh, uh, rather than housing, you know, that would those markets, those segments would be expected to do a little bit better in 2024. Mm-hmm. You know, for Melbourne, you know, where we are looking at the uh, aggregate uh, demand and supply picture, we do see the largest shortfall of any capital city in Melbourne. So Melbourne being a little bit more affordable as well, mm. it is much more undersupply compared to other cities uh, in the countries. So while it has been a little bit slow off the mark in terms of, of its uh, pricing recovery in 2023, it is expected to perform a little better in uh, 2024. Right. Now, interestingly, unlike Sydney, that higher price point in Melbourne, uh, that it's it's Sydney that's doing uh, better in terms of the higher price points. Uh, Melbourne, it's actually uh, sorry, it's uh, Sydney is actually the lower price points that's been doing better. In Melbourne, it's the higher price points that's been doing a little bit better. So okay. it is uh, quite a bit of a switch from from Sydney as well. But, you know, if we turn our attention to a market like Brisbane and the Gold Coast, you know, while we're not seeing that same extent of undersupply in those markets so far, I think that would change slowly as sort of more and more interstate migrants move because of uh, cost of living and affordability reasons. So uh, outside of a few inner city apartment market hotspots, you know, I'm thinking in Brisbane, like the uh, Fortitude Valley, the Newsteads of the world, uh, where there is a lot more apartment supply. You know, in other pockets, you know, we're seeing much broader, much more consistent price gains, particularly around that sort of Brisbane city and mid-ring suburban area as well. Hmm. Uh, for Perth, there's a lot of uh, uh, more supply coming through. So that demand bl- ba- supply balance in Perth is a lot more neutral compared to other cities. Now, having said that, a lot of cheaper, uh, more affordable suburbs in Perth are doing relatively better compared to the higher, more luxurious ends of the market. So where we're seeing a lo- finding locations with a lot of apartment supplies, and I'm thinking of locations like uh, South Perth, East Perth, Perth City, they are performing a little bit more poorly, lagging a little bit behind. But mm-hmm. avoiding that, you know, we are seeing more more consistent price gain. But that's a whirlwind tour of the country in terms of uh, what's happening city by city. Hopefully you get a sense of uh, how things are unfolding in, in these local markets. And certainly forearm for those uh, Christmas barbecue conversations. Uh, I always that, when you tell someone that you write property, that's all they ever ask, <laughs> so for sure. But now usually I have some I, extra info. Absolutely. Yeah. Usually I have over the disclaimer, legal disclaimer, but uh, you know it does help with the conversation. Yeah, and I, actually with mine, they always ask specifically. They said, "Oh, my house is on this street, this number," and I think, "Yeah, I'm not for logic. <laughs> I can't just spit out data for you right now." <laughs> no, uh, it's not same AI. Yeah, yeah, correct. Uh, we're, uh, we're not there yet. No, um, I want to also obviously our, our you know the, our readership also focuses on the commercial property market as well. Um, one of the you know key themes this year has been ESG. Um, you know, particularly as tenants uh, look for that flight to quality. So we've seen a lot of sort of tenants making the decision, but also for their employees to that they want better space. Um, you know, more greenery, all these things, green stuff. And we've also now seen that the corporates are leading the way in that sense. But now we've seen the Australian government this week say to the landlords that, you know, from 2026 um, office space that they occupy or will sign leases to must have, must be certain standards. So, you know, in I want to look at that as a theme. What has, what opportunities that have for the commercial property sector? Um with uh, ESG considerations. How will that impact the investment decisions? 
Absolutely. It does provide yeah. a lot of uh, thinking uh, for, for investors. It does provide a lot of opportunity as well. Look, mm. undoubtedly, the world of real estate is becoming greener. Yes. And it is starting to have very genuine impacts on what investors buy, uh, what tenants lease and the like. You know, as of 2022, we do thankfully have a, a clearly legislated commitment to reduce greenhouse gases by 2030 and, and, and be on the road to net zero emissions by 2050. Mm. And it is starting to come through in sort of the leasing requirements, as you mentioned, for corporate tenants and government tenants as well. Mm. Now, we have already seen this play out very clearly in Europe. So we know how this song sort of plays out. So you either become greener and reach yes. the financial rewards or you just simply get left stranded behind. Mm. But, you know, I'm the one to start more with the positive carrot than the uh, big negative stick. But let's start there. Mm. There are, you know, in our view, clear financial incentive for investors. There is a, a growing body of, of research and evidence pointing to a positive green premium. So where you have more sustainable buildings, they tend yes. to command better rents and higher prices. So I'm, of course, referring to a study by Dalton and First, uh, which provide a very good summary of the sustainability dividend across 14 countries, in, including Australia. Yes. It puts that sort of commercial rental premium at about 5% from sort of renting out uh, greener buildings, puts the price premium at about 12%, so commanding higher prices as well. Right. It's not just commercial space. You know, in the rent residential space, that rental premium is about 8%. The mm -hmm. price premium is about sort of 6%. Mm -hmm. So certainly there is a positive uh, carrot there, green carrot, uh, not orange carrot. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, there is also a big negative stick that I would sort of point to as well. There is, at the end of the day, a genuine adverse liquidity risk for people owning less sustainable and unrated assets. You know, mm. uh, if you sort of sit on them for too long, it may leave you with pieces of real estate that become stranded in the market over, over many years. Look, most significantly, that journey towards net zero creates sort of a, a need for continual reduction in building specific emissions, right? So, you know, whether you see it or not, it does provide progressive waypoints between now and that emission target in 2050. So there is this tidal shift in sustainability and sustainability requirements that puts increasingly stringent carbon targets for each building, for each owner every year. Right. In a market-driven environment, right, this is not quite a linear path we do expect to see a, a very lumpy adjustment ahead so so the more we see new buildings net uh, sort of zero carbon buildings coming online in the 2020s we do have more tenants more buyers more more lenders being more strongly incentivized to lease acquire to finance the more sustainable the greener option and driving that sort of accelerating retreat from the brown and the less sustainable buildings MaxCap Group is one of Australia's leading commercial real estate financiers. Since inception in 2007, they have originated and managed $14.5 billion across more than 490 investments spanning all real estate sectors and across the full capital stack. Where, where people owning individual buildings and they fall substantially behind this moving threshold for environmental performance, there, there comes with it this sort of mounting risk of re adverse repricing and market illiquidity, right? So there is this potential ban of underperformance. If you're sitting in that, that ban is widening with each passing year. For assets caught in that ban, there is a genuine risk of being stranded with, you know, reduced access to tenants, buyers, financiers, and even sort of a insurance provider. Mm. But I think the main point to when you sort of talk about opportunity as well. And I would make the point that a lot of that is office buildings, but it's not just office buildings. Certainly a lot of the attention, a lot of the commentary has been sort of a solely focused on office building being the first port, uh, port of call. Yes. And not surprising, there are a lot of office buildings. What is it? There are 170,000 office buildings in Australia. They are disproportionately weighted in terms of a mindset, but also in terms of co commercial market portfolios. Uh, you know, it's like 40% of, of transaction. Uh, yes. So there is a lot of work and there's a lot of scope to to do good there in terms of uh, putting in renewable power, you know, improving water usage, reducing uh, sort of waste outputs and the like. And all of those things are nothing to be sneezed at, you know, that they are doing, doing something positive and productive. But, you know, I would sort of widen the sort of uh, the people's sort of mindset a little bit more by talking about other types of real estate as well, where there's still a lot more work to be done in that sort of brown to green transition.
Mm. You know, in terms of, uh, you know, when we sort of think of industrial and factories and the like, there's a, a lot of popular imageries of, of things like pollutive smokestacks. So, you know, <laughs> you, people recognize yes. that there is a lot of work to do in terms of putting in renewable power, improving energy efficiency, and doing interesting things like putting carbon capture at the point of emission. So from a, a real estate perspective, you know, the per meter square sort of an energy output for warehouses and factories, they're actually quite low. But all the same, there's a lot of them, right? We're talking about 100,000 factories, 160,000 warehouses. So there's a lot of work to do in improving a lot of these sort of commercial sectors as well. But the main one I would draw the attention, your attention to is to talk about the uh, sort of healthcare sector. Yes. The energy usage rate for healthcare sector, and we're talking about, what is it, 20,000 nursing homes, 15,000 healthcare facilities. They are the highest in the real estate sector by quite a margin. Wow. So there okay. is a lot of massive scope and the potential sort of greatest greening impact by reducing energy usage for, for nursing homes, uh, for, for healthcare facilities by 30% in line with what we need to do to sort of uh, bring emissions down across the economy to hit this net zero objective by 2050s. So by all means, you know, we can sort of talk about a, a, a broadening conversation about brown to green transition, but, you know, let's not just restrict that to the office space. Yes, that's Absolutely. important, but mm. you know, we are talking about 11 million residential dwellings, a million commercial buildings. It's not just the uh, sort of, uh, you know, 170,000 uh, office buildings that we do need to focus on. Absolutely. I think, yeah, you're right. It, it office is primary, the primary focus because particularly when investors, the first thing they look at when, well, particularly uh, offshore investors, when they look at when they come to Australia, first thing is the offices in the CBD. So it's always the most talked about topic, but we have to obviously look at the other sectors type, like industrial, hotels, retail, et cetera, which, you know, brings me to the next one I want to talk about too, um, about the other markets aside from offices um, in the industrial and retail and hotels. We've seen hotels clearly outperform this year. The demand from investors has been uh, very high. I, I think it's off the back of that, it's due to the return of travel. Uh, a lot of people have their vengeance <laughs> after <laughs> lockdown. Um, so can you give us a sort of a, a, a look into the core markets of industrial, retail and hotels and, and yeah. offices too. What's happening there? Um, I, I you take one, a pick. Which and then, no, yeah, I won't go through sort of too much detail. But I, for yes. one, is very much uh, what I call revenge holidays. So having yes. missed out on a number of years of travel and uh, very keen to to sort of either by myself or take the family to go uh, uh, hold up the hotel sector, not just in Australia <laughs> but around the world as well. Yes. But when we sort of cast our eye across the different commercial sector, what the key theme that that falls out is. They are very different sectors. They are very going in very different directions. So, mm. you know, if I can sort of pick out a few things just for interest, right? You know, we talked about housing demand and supply imbalance. You know, that's not just spilling out into residential, but it does spill out into all types of living sectors. So, you know, by that I include things like student accommodation. We talked about yes. hotels, co-living, senior housing, built to rent, multifamily and the like. All of those things are seeing that fundamental tailwind of, it's just more people needing more roofs over their heads. And some of that is just return of spending and travel as well, adding to that. Mm. Out of order, those sort of uh, living sectors, you know, we do like student accommodation the most, and we do see that as the leading sector over the next couple of years in that alternative space. Mm. But, you know, uh, there's still a lot of love for, for logistics. You know, it is has been running very hot. It is running a little bit less hot now. But where we sort of look at the fundamentals the, in terms of the things like the structural rise of logistics, my growing propensity to be shopping online, um, and even things like inventory hoarding. So the manufacturers being concerned about supply chain disruption as a result, moving from yes. a just-in-time inventory model to a just-in-case inventory model. Mm. All of those things are adding for on a structural basis in terms of space take-up demand and rents as well. So while certainly we've seen uh, some of that runoff cool down a little bit because of the rise in funding costs and, and that's been weighing on softer cap rates and lower prices, you know, those things have had a disruptive impact in the near term, but, you know, over a medium term horizon, you know, that rental uh, growth outperformance is expected to be there. So, you know, there's still a lot of love for industrial, just probably not as 
buoyant or robust as it was for the last couple of years. That's a yeah, it's it's interesting point you make about the um sort of uh the manufacturers or the companies hoarding more uh, stock. I, I suppose that comes from the experience of um or from the customers too that they when they order something and, and thanks to Amazon they expect it the <laughs> next day. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that probably leads to why a lot of companies are now saying, well, if we have to compete, we have to have stock that we can send to customers the following day. Um, otherwise, they're just going to lose out on a sale, don't they? Absolutely. And we, mm. we do see very different trends in, in things like office and retail, right? Mm. Undoubtedly, all that love for, for sort of student accommodation and logistics and the like has, has come at the expense of the office and retail sector, right? Investor yes. demand for asset and asset pricing and rents have sort of a, a slow for both office and retail. Mm. Um, and they are still in that correction phase. Retail sort of started earlier, office joined the party a little bit later. And we do expect at some stage there are going to be turning point in these markets. But what drives those turning points is going to be very different, right? Yes. Office, which has been hit quite hard on a structural basis with working from home and, and the like. You know, we do need to see a deeper pricing correction, perhaps not as much as what we've seen in Manhattan and San Fran and London and the like, where yes. prices, you know, down 30% or more. What, mm. what we've seen here is, is 10% so far. And, but that's still not enough to be enticing buyers to, to come back. So a little bit more of a pricing correction, that might be sufficient to bring sort of investors back looking for value. Retail is a very different story, right? So you and I yes. and everyone with a mortgage knows that, you know, Reserve Bank with the high mortgage rates are taking more money out of household budgets and household pockets. So until we see a peak and a turning point in that mortgage rate, that uh, – uh, sort of spending capacity from shoppers is going to be quite constrained. So until we see that come through in the, into the retail space, uh, you know, that is going to be a drag for, for that sector as well. In all of this sort of different trends does have very clear implications for, for investors, right? We are still seeing consistent patterns of outperformance, so logistics, alternatives on the one hand, and consistent patterns of underperformance from office and retail on the other hand. And mm. it, the, the answer is quite simple, right? So doing a simple act of uh, sector selection, suddenly you've created alpha by, by moving from the underperformers to the over, uh, outperformers. So, you know, that that is still in play. And for people who haven't made that adjustment out of retail and office, you know, there is still returns on the table to be had, alpha returns from making that switch. So uh, we'll see more people sort of make that adjustment because these markets, these sectors are going in very different directions for the foreseeable future. Mm. Well, when you talk about retail too, I mean, we'll, I think it was this week, David Jones announced that they're going to not, well, they're going to terminate their lease earlier Eastland Shopping Centre in Melbourne. Um, and But on the other hand, the large formats retail seem to be performing well. It's, I, I remember once an economist told me that, you know, when you bring people into the country more as they, you know, buy a house, they need to buy white goods, right, so to, to stock up their house with fridges and washing machines. Is that one of the main reasons why we're seeing large formats continue to perform well? Uh, you know, during the sort of housing boom and, and sort of during COVID, you know, as people suddenly need needed more and more sort of bulky goods, home yes. office desk and, and sort of maybe a hammock during those sort of breaks during <laughs> the office day, working yes. from home as well, right? So, mm. look, but those things have sort of pulled back very clearly in the last couple of months. So, mm-hmm. um, it's not surprising to hear for people to hear that that sort of uh, sort of those discretionary items, those bulky items, they're the most interest rate sensitive. Mm. Certainly there's that element that you talked about where migrants need to fill up the houses straight away. Mm. But at the same time, you do have this sort of counter trend where people with a mortgage uh, suddenly have less, far less money to be buying discretionary. So that focus go back to non-discretionary food, um, not so much clothing nowadays, but yes. uh, it is is sort of drawing money away from from sort of these bulky goods. So, um, you know, we are expecting that large large format retail to come back a little bit because right. it is one of the more rate sensitive sectors, as you can imagine. Uh, mm. Big ticket items more prone to a, a sort of a buyer strike when you have high mortgage rates as well. So, um, it has outperformed absolutely over the last couple of years, but mm. it's going to come back to the pack a little bit over the next year.
MaxCap Group is one of Australia's leading commercial real estate financiers. Since inception in 2007, they have originated and managed $14.5 billion across more than 490 investments spanning all real estate sectors and across the full capital stack. In the student accommodation, we have seen the borders reopen. Uh, the Chinese government, for example, said to uh, the students that you can no longer get your diploma degrees if you do it online. You have to do it in person. That created the demand for the students to return to Australia. Um, and on top of that, we signed a deal with India as well to bring in more students. So sort of give us a outlook of I want to focus on the PBSA, purpose-built student accommodation sector. What is going to happen there in uh, next year? Absolutely. Just to to take one step back, the alternative sector, it is proving a little bit more popular than ever. Yes. Uh, There are very good reasons for that, you know, and and we talked about the struggles of the office and retail sector. They are the biggest shares of the portfolio. They are underperforming and nobody's got grand expectations of uh, sort of outperformance of these sectors in the near term. So it is high time if they haven't already done so for Mm. for investors to be moving out of these sectors and moving to something else whether that's industrial logistics or more more commonly alternative sectors as well Mm. now to be clear these alternative sectors have performed very well over the last couple of years Um, not shooting the lights out like the industrial and logistics space but it is still outperforming cbd offers regional malls by by quite a clear margin so right. in a world where, where a lot of these uh, big segments are underperforming, you know, people are being pushed to to find more fertile ground for for expansion, for improving their returns, for, for diversification. Now, of all the alternative sector, PBSA, purpose-built uh, student accommodation, it is the most attractive to us. Uh, for all the people in this country who is trying very hard to make the build-to-rent accommodation strategy, financial be viable and workable. You know, I would say here with PBSA, we have a a, a BTR sector that works today. Yes. You know, for for starters, there is a massive and growing tenant base. You know, we're talking about, you mentioned some of the trends, but the numbers suggest, you know, over 700,000 foreign students arriving in the year to August. So we're actually not far off a million foreign students at this growth rate, right? Mm. Um, You know, we know where these students like to live. Mm. We know when they arrive. They like to be around uh, universities and city centers, you know, where we're not sifting through a lot of potential development sites to find good locations, right? Absolutely. And we know at the same time the Australian market is very much underserved by PBSA. You know, before COVID and seasons uh, reopening, Australia sort of consistently ranks in the world top three for, for as a destination for global students, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but when we look at the PBSA space, you know, there is something like uh, in Australian dollar terms about a hundred. 10 billion of assets in the UK, about 100 billion sort of uh, uh, of assets in the US, and there is only about half a billion uh, of PBA's asset is in, in Australia as well. So, you know, in comparison, you know, we just have not seen the same degree of stock to meet that demand as well. Right. And unlike the PB, uh, BTR, built to rent sector, you know, this, this student accommodation space is not really competing with the mums and dads who are providing rental housing in Australia, right? Right. You, know, you and I can go and buy residential housing, uh, most likely accepting a 1% to 2% gross yield from the investment. And we're just happy to accept that because we, we claim a, a tax deduction from the tax office. There's no <laughs> such competition in the, uh, in the student accommodation space. Yes. And, you know, for all the concern about housing under supply, you know, this is a very much a, a very addressable issue. You know, again, we know where the tenants are coming from. We know where they land, where they stay, how much they're willing to pay for accommodation as well. So it's a very neat and tidy sort of a market we can sort of tie a bow around. Mm. And you know, at this stage of life, students are very mobile, very inclined to rent. Uh, we're actually not pushing against the great Australian dream of home ownership like uh, we are in the BTR space. So for us, that, that student accommodation space looks very, very attractive on a, on a sustained basis. We talked about this earlier about rising interest rates and funding. Um, I want to look at now the opportunity for investors, um, particularly, you know, international investors as they look into Australia. Um, can you talk us through sort of the funding gap um, and what does that look like in, uh, in Australia? 
Yeah, absolutely. It mm. probably bears a little bit of explanation in terms of what that funding gap is. Look, mm. you know, when we sort of think about real estate markets and what's happening uh, overseas in Australia, we've had a sort of very tough environment for commercial markets. We've had high interest rates. And all those things are having very direct and very profound impact into, into the lending space as well. Yes. Where we have falling asset prices, the collateral value that banks provided to lenders and banks and the like, they're falling. Mm. And with what's happening in the U.S. Uh, regional bank sort of uh, banking crisis, there, there is a credit crunch. There's sort of concerns that spills over from the U.S. regional banking system into the rest of the world. It does cause a little bit of concern, particularly with banks and their regulators, to be providing lower loan-to-value ratios. So for, for given assets, the, the amount of debt that's being provided is falling at the same time as those assets for values being falling. So all of those things are pointing in the one direction, which is reducing the, the availability of debt. And it does sort of provide this sort of wider, widening sort of funding gap that we're seeing in real estate credit markets as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's actually not easy to put a, a, a number to this sort of funding gap, but given recent transaction and lending market tra- uh, trends, you know, I would estimate that to be about sort of a 5 billion Aussie. Right. Uh, in 2024, okay. again, driven by the dual impacts of falling collateral value and sort of lower loan-to-value uh, sort of, uh, standards as well. Mm-hmm. And this, we notice uh, the extent of this uh, credit squeeze is playing out very differently in different sectors. You know, it's a little bit more muted because uh, in, in prime industrial because people are still happy to lend there. Leverage is good. Bank appetite for those sectors is quite firm, but it is far more pronounced in, let's say, office and, and retail markets where there is a higher sort of perceived risk, uh, banks, credit committees and the like are far more sort of touchy about lending into the space. And they are seeing sort of even more reduction in terms of uh, lending ratios, as well as the lower asset values. So the squeeze in those sectors is actually a, a little bit more acute. Now, right. to be clear, you know, what we're seeing here is not the same as what we saw in those uh, vicious uh, debt deflation cycle. And I'm talking about post-bubble in Japan where sort of uh, real estate and listed real estate values got inflated a lot and then deflated a lot. <laughs> and, you know, they sort of rose, doubled, tripled and, and sort of fell by 70%. This is not what we're seeing in, in Australia. You know, the, the system is still very soundly capitalised. Um, and we are not seeing that that extent of distress, both in terms of the upswing and also that that sort of downward correction as well. Right. Now, you know, we might see some of these sort of funding gaps sort of unwind over time, you know, but what unwinds it are, are things like a subsequent sort of pricing upswing for, for asset prices on a return to slightly easier lending standards. But, you know, we're not seeing that in 2024, realistically not in 2025 as well. So what we're seeing in terms of this uh, uh, funding gap is likely to be with us for the next year or two as well. Mm. Now, most notably is uh, yeah, we you know, work in a, a non-bank lender. So let me talk to my book a little bit. You know, we yes. do see uh, a, a prime opportunity for non-bank lenders as well, you know, because banks and banking regulators are being told to be a little bit more uh, cautious, rightly or wrongly, uh, given what's happening overseas as well. Uh, it does sort of, uh, uh, in a market that's still dominated by big Australian banks, you know, to the tune of 80 or 90% of the uh, real estate credit market, uh, mm. you know, you look at a comparable market in the US, uh, in Europe, that that is completely flipped around. So it's more dominated by non-bank lenders compared to, to bank lenders. So we do see a lot more space, room for growth for non-bank lenders, partly because A, there's this funding gap, B, because banks are being told to uh, to go into more and more sort of a cheaper, uh, in terms of capital charges, cheaper lending things like residential mortgages, as opposed to things like real estate credit. So we do see a lot of growth, a lot of opportunity uh, in this segment over the next couple of years. You touched on that, that obviously Maxcap is a non-bank lender and we have seen this year an an increase in mandates from overseas pension funds and sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, and insurance and those kinds of bodies looking for Australian credit. Um, Why is it that, uh, why do you think, oh, well, can you give us an insight into why the international investors such as these institutions like Australian real estate credit? Yeah, no, so short, simple answer is just better risk-adjusted return. So right. there's many dimensions to that, right? So mm-hmm. where you're able to invest across, across sort of global 
all asset classes to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you, you are seeing sort of because of weak growth, you have weak uh, equity earnings growth because of a high inflation, you have negative real bond yields, uh, you know, real estate infrastructure, not immune from slow growth and demand. A lot of these sort of returns have come down, slowed down a lot. And more concerningly, on a synchronized basis, you know, what used to be a well-diversified portfolio is suddenly fading in returns and not becoming diversified. So that's a cause of concern. Mm -hmm. And when you have high interest rates, you know, you're seeing more people sort of moving from uh, what I mentioned before, from from being a borrower towards lender because there is more returns there. And where we sort of are, even in that sort of private credit space, where we compare markets in terms of Australia versus the rest of the world, you know, we are seeing higher returns, lower volatility in Australia compared to comparable markets in in US, Canada, Europe, East Asia as well. Okay. You know, stepping back a little bit, you know, from Mm. an economic perspective, Australia, as I sort of mentioned at the outset, it's still well regarded as a sort of safe haven politically in terms of uh, economic outlook as well. So, you know, where someone's sitting on a global allocation or or uh, uh, an APAC allocation, you know, you, you're not going to be losing sleep by by deploying into Australia and New Zealand as opposed to some of these other more volatile markets. So all of those things sort of uh, points, uh, you know, if you're holding a credit compass, you know, a lot of those things are still pointing in the direction of Australia. So all of those things will warrant a much higher global allocation, not just in the private credit, but also into private credit into Australia and New Zealand as well. Mm. Well, Bruce, it has been a very informative uh, chat that I've had with you. I, we could have gone for probably a few more series. <laughs> Sorry, I don't uh, want to put too many people to sleep, but, but all good. It, it's fantastic. Actually, I had to hold back. I thought, no, 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 I, I'll ask that question next time. Um, but it, it has been very informative and a re- great recap of what has happened over the past uh, year and also, you know, and also a great insight into what will hopefully we'll expect some you know events turn out and unfold in 2024 and thank you very much for joining me at the australian property journals talking property podcast thank you nelson it's been a pleasure i look forward to having you back soon cheers bye